0: Friends, God's good word for us today to consider is particularly from Matthew chapter 24, and we'll look at that also with reflections on our study. Someone the other day was standing in line, and they were standing in line to register for class. Now, if you're standing in line to register for class, particularly for classes for your kids, you're all fairly the same, You're from the same uh, age group, give or take a little bit, Uh, and most of these people were all ladies registering their kids for classes. Uh, They're all from the same or similar-ish walks of life. And as this person stood in line waiting to register their kids, they looked at the person behind them and they thought, should I say something? Should I say hello? Hello? They decided not to because they said something like, oh, that person doesn't seem very approachable. That person doesn't seem very pleasant. That conversation will probably not go well. I don't want to, to stir up a ruckus, cause something, and so I'm just not going to say anything. A little thing, right? A very little thing. They chose not to say anything anything, and yet they didn't know it was so significant. Waldinger and Schultz, the authors of our book that we're taking a little bit of a look at, say this, positive relationships are essential to human well-being, and they provide this very stark contrast for us. They tell us of two men, John and Leo. John and Leo are the main characters of their study that they've been working on for decades. John is a very successful man, relatively speaking. He attended Harvard. He became a lawyer. He ended up counseling or uh, advising the United States government on cases He worked at a prestigious law firm. He taught at the University of Chicago in the end. He was at least a 10-percenter. And by that, they mean he had a top 10% income and assets in the United States. Leo, on the other hand, was what one researcher said, a boring middle-class individual. Leo went to war. When he, the war was finished, he came home from the war. He took care of his mom. He ended up then not being able to realize his dream. He too had gone to Harvard. His dream had, to be, had been to become a writer. He was unable to become a writer because he took care of his mom. Uh, he ended up getting married. He had four kids. The only great achievement of Leo's life, he bought a boat. That was his thing. No laughs, huh? That was his great achievement. Now, here's their insight. The problem is, John was repeatedly the most unhappy person in the study. And Leo was consistently the happiest. John repeatedly was considered the least happy. He consistently reported feelings of disconnection and sadness throughout his life. He struggled in his first marriage. He alienated his children. When he remarried at the age of 62, he referred to that relationship too as loveless as long as it lasted. Leo, on the other hand, was considered one of the most happy men in the study. He had four kids and a wife who all adored him. He was fondly remembered by his friends, his coworkers, and his students. He consistently rated himself as very happy or extremely happy that's their point why is it so difficult on in the moment to make decisions that will actually benefit our well-being why don't do we so easily overlook the sources of happiness that are right in front of us or in other words why don't we talk to the person behind us in line The Bible says the same thing, and it actually says even more, so we're going to take a look at that today. It's summarized well for us in that law, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what we want to take a look at today. But before we do that, and we we get through that too much, here's where we're going to start, that we need to re-believe about relationships, and then we're going to get to the point that the gospel really relates us. So the big idea is this, positive relationships are essential to human well-being. And the first thing that they point out then is that we need to re-believe relationships. We need to re-believe in our minds about relationships. And they give a bunch of evidence, and and I don't want to bore us with too much of it, so I'm just going to give us three points of evidence to show us that we really need to re-believe about relationships. The first one has to do with what's called affective reasoning or affective forecasting. Affect is your emotions. Affect is your emotions. And affective forecasting means that human beings guess how an experience will make them feel, and then we make decisions based upon our guess, And so the research goes through an example like this. They asked commuters, which of two options would they prefer? Okay, I'm going to set that down here for a second. They asked commuters, which of two options would you do? If you were riding on a train or a plane, would you talk to the stranger sitting next to you or not? Would you talk to the stranger or would you just mind your own business? And then they, they did a little study and they said, okay, pretend this group of people don't talk to the person sitting next to you and this group of people talk to the person sitting next to you. What do you think they found? You can probably already guess based on where we're going here. The result of the, this survey, the result of the little research was fascinating. What they found was the people consistently said this. When commuters were told to strike up a conversation, most had a positive experience and rated their commute, catch this, as better than usual. And those who typically worked on the train reported that the trip was no less productive than when they talked to a stranger. Can you get that? Right. They're saying, we're all inclined to believe that if we talk to the person sitting next to us in, on the train or the plane, or you talk to the person sitting behind you in line, that it's going to be a hassle. It's going to be a pain. It's going to be unpleasant. And yet, the reality is just the opposite. Talking to the strangers actually improves your experience. I mean, we can do just a simple test of this. How many of you believe that talking to a stranger here at church, Right? just look around for a second, think of all the people that you don't know and you don't know their names, how many of you believe talking to that person will improve your experience of coming to church? You don't have to raise your hands, right? I mean, just think to yourself, how many of you don't operate with the mindset sometimes that says, you know, I just want to come into church, I'm going to sit there, be quiet, I'm going to sing the hymns, I'm going to hear the preaching, and I'm going to go out and I'm not going to talk to anybody because that's all I can handle today. Right? I mean, don't we sometimes think that? And, and you know, I go out here every, every time and I say, be sure to say hello to somebody, especially perhaps to somebody that you haven't talked to before. And I wonder if, if we were to do a little study, a little test, how many of us have actually talked to somebody that we didn't talk to before? I would guess most of us. Their point is, we all have this thing called affective forecasting. Affective forecasting. And we're wired to make decisions based on how we think it will make us feel. And that's fine, because your instincts are necessary for a lot of things in life. But one thing they're bad at? Relationships. You almost cannot guess how a relationship will make you feel. So there's their first piece of evidence. We need to re-believe relationships. The second thing is is money. It deals with money. Um, Of course, we all have a a lot of thoughts about money and how much money either leads to happiness and a good life or it doesn't. But the research here is, is pretty fascinating because in general, up to a point, money does actually buy happiness. In 2010, the studies were all done, and the number was $75,000. You needed to make about $75,000 in life to feel secure, to have a basic sense of security, and pay for your basic needs. Okay? In 2023, 20, $75,000 would be about $100,000. So if you're at that mark, you can kind of guess on how much you feel secure or everybody else doesn't or does not. But then the interesting thing, the fascinating thing is that after that point, every study shows that more money does not necessarily mean more security. And the problem is, after that, money becomes part of status and pride. And we use money then to compare ourselves to others. We use money to achieve things in life Money becomes kind of an artifact of success. And so the more we spend our time comparing ourselves to others, the more we spend our time feeling how others might be feeling or feeling how we feel compared to others, the less happy we make ourselves. The question isn't, does money buy happiness? The question is, what is our money buying us? And if our money is simply buying us basic security— and basic well-being, our basic needs, as well as buying us connection with others, like Leo did. His one goal in life was to buy a boat, and he used that boat to spend his time with his kids and his grandkids. They loved that time together. That was the, the marker of his, not success, but the marker of his connection. Then all of a sudden money can become that huge thing that does bring happiness. So that's their second piece of evidence, right? So the first piece of evidence was affective forecasting. The second was what actually makes us happy. And it's not so much money as it is the things that money can get us. The third piece of evidence deals with social connection and the fact that social connection increases the likelihood of survival. And so they they, basically the gist is this. They point out that most people— Most people think something like this. I can't be happy in life because there's so much that is out of my control. I can't possibly have a good life because I can't control most of the things. And people say things like this to me all the time. People will comment to me about their work situation. Pastor, my work is just driving me crazy. My bosses don't treat me well. We work insane hours. We don't ever get anything done. I'm not rewarded for the work that I get done. I hate my work environment, but I can't do anything about it because I need a job. Or they say, Pastor, my family just drives absolutely bonks. (laughs) I feel so stuck in my family, right? We're dysfunctional beyond all belief. We can't get along. We fight. The relationships are breaking down. Everything is falling apart. See, that's how we tend to process life. We say, I can't have a good life. Things can't possibly go well for me because there's so much that I can't control. I can't fix my family. And then they do this this little study. They point out and they say, you know, all of those factors in your life, they do matter a lot. Your intelligence matters, your ability matters, your, uh, your sex matters, your ethnicity matters, your, your gender matters. All these things matter, and there's not much that you can do about those things. But if you take all of those factors into account, the evidence still shows that people who are more socially connected have less of a risk of dying at any age. If you want to experience life, whether you are 15 or 50 or 85, the more social connection you have, the more likelihood that you will actually be able to experience the life around you. You will have a life, more likely a good life than not. And it doesn't matter what those external factors are. One of the very famous studies compares people growing up in rural Georgia with Finland. Those two countries or two spaces could not be more uh, more different. Life expectancies, education, ethnicity, everything about it, right? Social structure, all of that stuff. All factors that they could not control. And they said... The thing is is once you dig deep into the data the people who lived the longest and kept surviving year after year after year through all of the calamities that happened around them were the most socially connected. They were the people who had the most social connections to their friends, their family, their neighbors, and everybody else. And if they didn't have family, they went and found new family. If they didn't have friends, they went and built new friends. Right? The people who lived through all of the tragedy and the calamity and the stress of life kept building new social relationships. So there's three pieces of evidence to just tell you and me we need to re-believe about relationships. We don't just need to rethink them. We need to re-believe them. And maybe you say to yourself, you know, this is all just nice verbiage, pastor. It's nice talk that pushes out the same lines that we get from everybody else these days. Everybody else is telling us, we need to have more relationships. We need to do better at getting, having relationships. We need to build social connections. We're so polarized as a society. There's such a disconnect. Families are so dysfunctional. Everybody's breaking down. We need to do better at this. Yes, pastor, we get all of that. Maybe it even just makes you mad because you think to yourself, this is what I've been doing for decades and you're just yelling at us. The thing is, is the Bible said this thousands and thousands of years ago, right? And it didn't just say it in a, in a way that said build better relationships. It actually said this, right? It said the greatest command is to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now th- think about what Jesus said there. He's asked to summarize the entire commandments of God. 2,000 years ago, he said, The basis of a good life is to love God and to love your neighbor. And he was summarizing a law that was given a thousand years before that. Jesus didn't think that a good life was obeying God. He said it was loving God. He didn't even say a good life is being a good person. He said a good life starts with loving your neighbor. Now, think about that for a second, right? That's how, really pay attention to that. That's how a good life starts. Thousands of years before Waldinger and Schultz said, hey, we need to re-believe about relationships, that we've got a culture and a place around us that pushes us in all of the wrong directions about relationships, Jesus said, love others. He's pointing out, you know, the natural wiring of people is to say, if I'm a good person and I do good things in life, then everything will be okay. It'll all work out. And God said, no, that's not the way it works. If you want things to work out, love God and love other people. Right? Build good relationships first. Have real loving relationships with other people. And then, then life will get better. Let me give us a, a little example here, right? A little illustration. Love is essentially secure attachment, right? Love is secure attachment. It is a connection to somebody else. There we go. Ta-da. I was stuck there for a second, okay? What, what love is, is it's a secure attachment. whoa, Yeah, see? Our attachment is not very secure. (laughs) Sorry about that. I probably pulled too hard. Right? Now, it is a secure attachment between you and me that will say, I can trust you when things go badly, and I can use you as kind of a launching pad to make things better in life. I've got you, and you've got me. And for whatever reason, we're all wired to think, not wired to think, but we all naturally are inclined to think, life can be good if I put that cord down, and there is nothing here to hold me up. But what God is saying, and what this study is telling us from the start is, You cannot have good things over here if you don't have this connection. And if there's not enough of these, enough of these secure attachments, then you absolutely cannot have a good life. There is something that flows, right? There is something that conducts from you to me and me to you back and forth that empowers, that fills up my life, that is the juice that keeps me going in life, that's, that's the drive that pushes me from day to day. All right, we can end our secure attachment. And if you want to know why life ends up falling apart, it's because the cord breaks. You see what God is telling us about even his own very heart, right? Right? God has told us the greatest thing in life is that you would love God and love your neighbor. Not that you would be a good person, not that you would even obey all the commands. The most important thing is that you would love. And how awesome isn't it then that Jesus said, I am the very example, the very personification of love. I am love in a human body. Jesus came down into this earth, and God said that very famous passage. What is that famous passage that we all learn even as, as little kids? This is how God showed us his love. God so loved the world that he sent his son. God showed us his love. He made his love real so that he could always be connected to us, so that we would have a secure attachment. God did not say the most important thing in your life is that you would finally start to shape up. God didn't say the, the most important thing in, in his life is that you would start to be a good person. He said the most important thing is that I would love you so that you can love me back. And I know, I know that sometimes adding all of those other people in your life shakes our lives up a lot, doesn't it? right if you add somebody else in your life who's kind of a disastrous mess it's going to cause a lot of problems you're going to feel like you get pretty shook up in life do you ever think about the fact that that god never said gee those humans are such a mess and it's going to ruin my whole existence if i have to put up with them <laughs> right i mean it was a good thing that jesus didn't show up in the stable in the manger in bethlehem and say Gee, this? This is the best you got for me? This is kind of a mess. I don't want to put up with you guys. Can I get out of here, God? Right? Jesus didn't get down into the cross carrying out the sins of the world on his very own body and said, "Well, wow, this is sort of hard and it hurts and I'm kind of tired of loving these people. Can I just get out of here, God? He didn't say that, did he? He let his life get shook up all the way to loving us. And it's okay if every time you love somebody else, your life gets shook up a little bit. That will be a good thing for you. It shows you're alive. Nobody likes flat soda, do you? All right, maybe a few of you like flat soda. Any of you like flat soda? I don't want to insult you. Uh A couple hands, flat soda, right? But if you want to actually be alive, you need some fizz, you need some bubbles, you need some juice in your life. Let that love shake up your life rebelieve about relationships it'll do more for you than you thought let's pray that god would let us rebelieve those relationships lord god we are all tempted to think that we can be good people and life will be okay if we go our own way in your word you tell us very pointedly love you, and love our neighbor. And as hard as that is, as painful as that is, as much as that shakes up our lives sometimes, we need to remember and hear that you have shook up your very own existence so that our lives can be filled with life. We pray that you would become the life of our lives, that you would devote yourself to our very life and existence, no matter what that takes. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.